Welcome to Top of Mind with Concilio Wealth, a show about markets, investing, and financial planning. Join us as we cover current events that are in the news and answer top of mind questions from our listeners. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. This audio may contain statements that may be deemed as forward-looking. Any such statements are not guarantees of future performance and actual results may differ from those projected. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, tax, or other professional services. Welcome everyone to episode 31 of Top of Mind with Concilio Wealth. How and I are back today to discuss uh, latest news of the last two weeks and some interesting things that have developed in the economy. And on today's podcast, we will talk about the Fed, because the Fed's been in the news a lot. Seems like they've renewed their concerns about upside inflation risks. So we thought we would unpack that and what we think it'll do to interest rates. Mortgages have been in the news a lot. They are at their highest point since 2000. Uh, Holy moly. We wanted to talk about... Say again? Mortgage rates? Mortgage rates. Yes. Yes, not Sorry mortgage balances. You. No, that's okay. Mortgages, yeah. Yes, I did say mortgages. You're right. Thank you for the correction. Um, and uh, we're not prepared to talk about mortgage balances. So, geez, we just have to talk about <laughs> mortgage rates. And we'll talk about that and how it relates to U.S. home sales are falling, but not in the West. They say the West Coast is the best coast. Anyway, yeah. and then an Airbnb it. recession. What's going on with Airbnb listings? We thought we would try to unpack that. This has been in the news a little bit too. How sorry I interrupted you. You were saying something there. Oh, I was interrupting you saying everyone wants to come to the West. Love it. Love it. Let's just keep interrupting each other for the next 30 minutes and then we'll just, (laughs) we'll just post this. That sounds good. (laughs) All right. Well, why don't you kick us off? So the Fed has been talking and as we all know, or we like to joke here internally, Whenever the Fed talks, the market seems to go down. So we would just like them to not talk a lot. Um, that think we think that'd be better. So, uh, how what are you seeing in the news? What's what as you de, as you demystify the cryptic messages that the how is sent that the how that the Fed is sending? Um, what do you make of it? Yeah, I guess not too cryptic, but they their Fed minutes came out from the last uh, hike, and I believe that was the the July meeting. It's August twenty fourth at ten a.m. Pacific. And the rally had, you know, the, the rally this year had been sputtering. Um, what's really been priced in all year has uh, the Fed's going to hike, and then we're going to we're we're seeing we see the future. Um, again, we're not clairvoyant. It's just it's called the futures market, and they price in future expected interest rates, and that that rate had been shown to, at points, drop at the second half of 2023. So the Fed was going to hike and then cut. Mm-hmm. And that's not happening. And what's shifting is that cut or expected cut is going out towards 2024 and into 2025. So that's mm. what, so again, every, everything's really driven in this market by interest rates. So if interest rates are moving around, you're going to see price action based on that. I know it sounds weird, but expectations are really shifting, and they always shift, right? Because expectations don't always become a reality. So as we get more information, like the Fed saying, we're concerned about upside inflation, what does that imply? Well, that implies that inflation is not dead. 
we're going to have to hike more or keep a pause on at higher rates longer than what the market is, is expecting. And that's why the recent sell-off in August, a lot of it could be seasonality too, but that that's what the biggest fundamental push or response to that is. And when you say that the market is anticipating cuts in, I think you said late 2024 or 25, mm-hmm. what you're referring to is how the market is digesting and then therefore pricing in what they think the Fed Correct. is signaling. Correct. So the so, Fed hasn't come out and said, we're going to cut in 2024. We think we might, but the market is anticipating that based on the language that the Fed is using. That That's what I'm referring to, yes. But okay. yes, uh, to answer your other part, the Fed does forecast what they expect their own rates to be, mm. and they call it the dot plots, and they do it by a range mm-hmm. where uh, in a year we expect the Fed funds rate, which is the what the interest rate we're talking about, uh, will be from 5.25 to 5.75 in a year. That's what their forecast will would say as an example. Which so is a they, quarter lower than it is now, right? Right now, I, I use that as an example, but yeah, they will, they do and have forecasted lower rates in the future, and it has been in line with the market expectations. Because the market so, cues off what the Fed's saying, too. So that was my next question is, yeah. does the market anticipate something different than the Fed? I know there's been yeah. discrepancies here in the past. The Fed says we're going to do this, and the market basically doesn't believe them, and yes. they price in something different. What's happening right now? Very good point. So all year, they've been in line with the Fed, with the futures. Now, those future expectations are starting to diverge, and the market is saying, uh, starting to price in more of a pause versus the Fed right Again, their dot plot is showing more steeper cuts. Again, their their econ- economic models are slower to react. You will see the market diverge from the Fed. Uh, that, that's why uh, credibility is so important, too, is no one believes the Fed. They're going to start pricing in their own expectations. Mm-hmm. And if that starts diverging from the Fed's expectations, then we suddenly don't have any credibility with these rate hikes or mm-hmm. rate cuts. And that's pretty dangerous. So... We like to see that in line. We like to see the market lined up and build their expectations off of what the Fed's already saying. But yeah, there the, are points of, uh, of divergence, points when the market disagrees, which is fine, but we don't want those to be persistent and long-term. This is a quote from the Fed meeting summary, and this says, with inflation still well above the committee's longer run goal, and with the labor markets remaining tight, most participants at the Federal Reserve continued to see significant upside risks to inflation, which could require further tightening of monetary policy. Translation, further interest rate hikes than what they've previously said. So I think that's what spooked the markets. Yep. Because rates actually went up in the last couple of weeks, right? Yes. Yep. Yeah. And the last time they raised rates, like actually raised rates rather than just talking about it like they did here in the, in the last two weeks, rates didn't really move at all. Correct, because all those expectations were already priced in. Priced in. What this, what this new bit of information was, you know, they don't want to be a 70s type of Fed, right? Meaning <clears throat> the 1970s, they cut rates a little prematurely, inflation's rekindled. And I think they would want to leave a better legacy than what Arthur Burns did in 1970. And they want to 
be doubly sure. And if that means raising rates a tad too high, they'd rather err on that side versus, you know, doing what we did in the 70s and letting inflation run wild again. And how is this affecting mortgage rates and the home market? Yeah, and I think this is going to be the bulk of our pod today where uh, mortgage rates touch about 8% at a time. So it's wow. queued off the, uh, the 10-year treasury, which touched 4.3%. Uh, for everyone's reference, we started at 3.5% on the 10-year, and mortgage rates were hovering around 5, 5, 5.5%. So uh, mortgage rates definitely are jumping. I think a lot of it has to do with bank health as well. But I think mortgage rates were highly sensitive in the last week to this. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. So rates keep climbing. Uh, um, it also, you, you have a note in here about how arms are rising in popularity again. Um, for our listeners, an arm is an adjustable rate mortgage mortgage uh, compared to a fixed rate mortgage. So most, t- most of the time you'll buy a 30-year fixed mortgage, which is pretty simple. Your payment is the same. The interest rate is the same for 30 years. Versus an arm or adjustable rate mortgage, you would have a fixed rate for a period of time, say five or seven or maybe 10 years, and then it would move to an adjustable rate for the remaining period of the loan. These are also generally amortized over 30 years. So in the case of a 10-year arm, the first 10 years are a fixed rate. The next 20 are a variable rate based on prevailing market at that time. And what you're saying here, how is that ARM loans, which are traditionally less than 2% of all mortgages sold, are now at around 7% of yep. mortgages sold. Yep. And I think it's because home buyers can't stomach an 8% or can't afford to pay an 8% mortgage rate fixed. Yep. Right? Yep. Um, so ARM is a good way, as long as there's proper planning, I, I think what we want to get into that, where you got to know when the reset happens or how you figure out a way to refinance that. I know we talked about uh, one of our regional banks uh, in the Northwest set the price of arms much higher than the normal market rate. So you gotta be, you do have to shop around. Um, A lot of the regional banks will not offer arms at the rates we're talking about here. Hmm. Well, and what's interesting here too is if you're betting, if you're betting that interest rates will go down an arm could make a lot of sense because if you lock for five or seven or 10 years or three years and you're betting that rates go down, you're going to refi anyways. You're going to refi yeah. your 30 year fixed. You're going to refi your arm. So if you're betting on that, since the arm is a lower interest rate today with most banks than a 30 year fixed, that makes that bet make sense, right? Because you're paying less interest today and then you're going to refi anyways. Correct. I believe these are non-conforming too. Those, so the, it's not like a bank would go out and uh, release a hundred percent of their available loan money to an arm type of product, right? Because I think they have to keep on hand what they loan out. So there's one limited hmm. amount and limited amount of offerers. I don't know. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I don't know I don't if they're know. limited to which, like the percentage of products that they can sell. Maybe we'll have to have a bank person yeah. on and ask them yeah. that. Because I know Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac will typically only uh, unload 
conforming loans from banks. So if I, I loan out a million dollars, uh, traditionally a bank would just chop up that million dollars and sell it to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So right. they, they could rinse and repeat, right? Right. Um, there's a limit to the, the I guess, subprime. Hopefully it's not a bad word still, but if there's a certain <laughs> amount of subprime or jumbo loans in your portfolio, you have to hold on to a certain amount of those. Well, subprime is not jumbo. Subprime is secondary. Correct. Um, I'm lumping jumbo as a non-conforming. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, we posted about this a couple weeks ago on on LinkedIn, um, and we commented this in a prior episode as well, but the nation's largest home buyers have been offsetting higher mortgage rates. And this is an interesting story. Home um, so we're talking. Say again? Home builders are offsetting interest rates, right? Thank you. <laughs> Not speaking very well today. Um, glad we're recording. It is Thursday morning. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> and uh, I can't talk, so just keep correcting me. And as the theme, you know, we just we should just keep interrupting each other. I think this is going really well so far. Well, so anytime I say this, something wrong, just interrupt me. Yeah, my wife called us out first. Uh, I, I presented like a bit of bad news, and you responded, "Good for you." <laughs> it was so obvious you weren't listening. But again, uh, for everyone's edification, we're looking at a an outline. We're typically not looking at each other. Yeah. You know, if you're watching <laughs> us, we're probably like, you know, we're reading this doc, uh, cause we throw notes in here throughout the yeah. week and then we, yeah. uh, we kind of go over it as we, as we record the podcast. So, um, yeah, you're right. I guess sometimes, uh, I'm not fully, fully listening. God, <laughs> oh my God. Gotta listen to the own recording here. And well, we're just, yeah, just poking I, at you. For every, you know, I'm not a multitasker. Uh, I, I can do one thing at once. Um, if I do two things at once, neither of those things are being being uh, handled. I, I yeah. will try to attend a webinar and like write an email at the same time, and I'm not actually listening to the webinar at all. So that's just me. <laughs> it's just me. I know a lot of people out there are much better at multitasking than me, but I'm not. Anyway, what are we talking about today? We're talking home about builders. Uh, home, builders. Home, home builders, not home buyers. Yes. Okay. So home builders, yes, home builders have been trying to <laughs> offset higher mortgage rates. How? Not mortgages, mortgage rates um, by either buying down these rates uh, for shorter long terms. So we posted about this a couple weeks ago on LinkedIn. We talked about this on the pod. Uh, what is interesting is these are, so these are the huge builders like DR Horton, uh, Lennar Homes, these, these, these types of builders. And uh, they're in a very unique position because they are some of the only fresh inventory that's hitting the market. Um, people that are owning these 3% mortgages have very little incentive to sell. And so much of the new inventory that's actually hitting the market are not existing home sales, they are new home sales. And so home builders are had a significant advantage and actually their prices have been supported and are going up. What they've been doing, however, is offering some cash in the way of a rate buy down, sometimes in full, sometimes for the first couple of years, in order to make it easier to purchase their homes. Uh, this is good for the builder because they can support their higher price point. Uh, so it'd be better for them if they sold the house at, say, exactly a million dollars and gave you a credit behind the scenes to lower your mortgage rate versus if they sold the house at 995000 and gave you $5,000. Um, they would rather sell at a million in order to keep keep the, the 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 prices of their homes continuing to climb. 
how what's your take on this? And I, I know I kind of said a lot there, but what's your take on what the home builders are doing and how they're affecting rates? Yeah, they have a lot going for them that individual home buyers don't, right? First of all, bulk. Like they're buying these pools of I guess dollars that they can loan out, right? Cuz they're borrow- they're borrowing at much lower rates cuz they're just borrowing lots more of it and then mm. they can turn around and and again fold it into their margins as well. So throwing out a ballpark number let's say they make 10 percent on each house sold well again they can shrink their margins a little bit to help buy down some of the rates for the incoming home buyers so i think that that in a mechanical sense works for home builders versus me or you trying to get into the market and trying to get a discounted rate through a traditional loan so when okay, so there's two things happening here. Home buyers are kicking in cash to to buy down rates, but then the second thing you mentioned is interesting, which is home buyers are actually buying like huge amounts of mortgages, say ten million dollars in mortgages, and then they're slicing that up and selling it with their homes. Does that mean that the mor- the builder is taking on those mortgages and taking risk, or how does that work? So similar to a bank, the the mortgagers, the mortgagers, the Home builders are suddenly mortgagers, but <laughs> they're they're funneling through a bank. Yeah, already. Keep so this going the, all the bank, day today. I'm glad it's not just me. <laughs> the bank the bank is uh, is involved, so it's not like uh, KB Homes is is giving you <clears throat> a direct mortgage called KB Homes Mortgage Company. Uh, they're working with the okay. Wells Fargo or a big bank that that again has a backroom deal with the home builder. Which makes sense for a big bank because they they got all this capital coming in that they're paying, what, point oh one percent on their savings. For, uh, I'm talking mm-hmm. about a big bank. I know everyone is out there screaming five percent on cash. Not if you're banking with J.P. Morgan, right? So the, <clears throat> those those two are working together in concert. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Let's move to insurance. I think this is an interesting conversation here. So you have some comments here on how insurance companies are pulling from Florida. I think we've all seen in the news, there's been some insurance companies pulling from California. Um, and there's been some, some changes in the, the Texas area as well. Um, what's your, let's, let's start with Florida. What, what's been in the news about Florida and insurance companies? Yeah, well, Florida does have a state run market where they propose. So in insurance, you have to propose a certain amount of rate hikes and regulators tend to agree or disagree, right? So mm-hmm. you want to raise your your rates next year by 10%, why, right? You have to present the case, right? It's called a rate sure. case. <clears throat> so with Florida, they have a state-run um, network and a state-run insurance company. They propose a 12% rate increase, right? And they cited um, uh, weather, right? Heavier sure. storms, flooding, things like that, um, and twelve percent is it affordable for F- Floridians, new or old? I don't know. A rate increase of that, a double digit for anything, is very expensive. But that's to account for the cost of building, right? So if your home blows down, you got to rebuild a new home. So the cost of lumber, copper, all that stuff that goes into it, if that's all gone up, the the insurance payout goes up. So this is citing higher costs to rebuild in Florida, and that's why insurance rates need to go up. So not necessarily more homes getting damaged by uh, 
hurricanes or of the like. It's the cost of rebuild that's going up that insurance companies have effectively underpriced, and that's why they need to raise rates. Well, that's a big part of it. Um, but Florida has experienced um, storms larger than Katrina. I'm quoting the article here. So if you get yeah. something that of that magnitude where that wipes out half the state, uh, whatever insurer is out there writing policies, they're suddenly out of business. You can't, as an insurance company, which sounds odd, you can't cover that much in losses. Right. I know Katrina was a huge issue there too. So, you know, wiped yeah. out a huge amount of homes and there's a ton of damage and, you know, the insurance companies didn't fully pay. I know that there's a lot of sentiment with a lot of people that live in that area that have a very bad view on insurance companies because they insured their homes and then they received nothing or much less than what their rebuild costs would be, which is then prohibitive. I mean, homes are expensive. That's why yeah. we take mortgages to buy them, right? I mean, people don't generally have cash to just plop down on a house. Uh, at least and not until they're, you know, 65 and retired. And most people who are retired own their homes fully, but uh, anybody that's before retirement generally doesn't. Well, yeah, let's take insurance out of it. It's like, let's say your dwelling is $400,000 to fully replace. Who has Mm -hmm. that laying around? And if they do, can they afford to pull that out of whatever account that that was laying in? Like, they need that for living expenses and i think i think this is a big problem right um last year four insurance companies left florida in terms of adding new customers like triple a farmers insurance are no no longer writing new policy for homeowners in florida which is very similar yeah go ahead you were saying that's because they proposed this rate increase and the state of florida said oh you can't do that you can't do a 12 percent increase so they said okay we'll leave like that's what happened right well, yeah, they're for-profit companies. These are for-profit companies. So if, if one, if they're upside down on policies where I'm bringing in $1,000 a month from a policyholder and I got to pay out 2000 a month in in claims, what kind of business is that? You're, you're losing money. So, yeah. again, I'm not trying to empathize with insurance companies, but as a business, they have to stay solvent somehow. And what's going on in California? Very similar situation where... Other than the storms, right, California um, has concerns about wildfires. We have a lot of open land here, and uh, it's the same thing. Uh, farmers, I know it was State Farm who no longer writing new policies for the cost of replacement issues and the, the severity and frequency of loss, right? So, hmm. so if your entire community burns down, how does that look for an insurance company? Mm-hmm. I know we're sounds like we're being empathetic to them, but again, in terms of insuring, you're replacing what was lost. But if what was lost is getting more expensive or it's getting lost more frequently, that's, that's a double, double bad news for an insurer. I mean, look, insurance is for disasters, right? So the, the yeah. whole point of it is if I want to insure something or if I insure something, I need it to pay if I, if I need it. That's the yeah. point of insurance, right? So, yeah. I mean, I think you're not, yeah, I don't, I don't think you're being empathetic towards insurance companies. Insurance companies, like my, my concern is I just want them to pay. If the premium yep. needs to go up by 10 or 12 or 20%, so be it. You know, I, I, I or anybody can make the decision on if I want to continue with that company or whatever. But the point is they need to be able to pay. Because yeah. that's what insurance is. That's the definition of insurance, right? Yeah, we're, we're seeing a lot of climate-based decision-making, um, not only in those two states, but Arizona, right? They stopped 
giving new housing permits because of the lack of water supply. Yeah. Uh, we're just seeing, we're living it right now in the wildfires in Maui. Maui of all places, the place is surrounded by water, but it's on fire. So how do you prepare for this kind of thing, at least in, in a financial sense? I know we're trying to stay to that in that realm, but financial is muddy, right? Everything requires a dollar. And if you're thinking about all these environmental changes, right, are, are some of these places habitable in terms of a dollars and cents type of viewpoint? Yeah, I'm sure we're going to see in the news too. Unfortunately, just so much of Maui burned, and you know I've seen estimates. Oh, it was a billion, and now it's up to five billion, and and you know more more people there uncovering more people have have died because of this, which is just unbelievably scary and sad, and and you know people jumping in the water and stuff. And I think the worst part is we're probably going to start seeing headlines here soon that insurance companies are, you know, this insurance company can't pay or that insurance company yeah. can't pay because they didn't actually plan for this fire. I mean, this was a, uh, what was it, 85 years ago or 100 years ago? I think you just told me this. That was the last fire on Maui, something like that. So, you know, all these buildings, how do you price in a 100-year event? Um, yeah, but that's what the insurance is for is to protect against those hungry events. Okay, so I have earthquake insurance on my house, and uh, I I will admit that it's one of those things that, you know, I write that premium check, and it's like, well, if the big one that everybody's concerned about here in the greater Seattle area hits, and my house blows over along with everybody else's, are they gonna pay? Like, it would be such a huge event, billions and billions of dollars in the area, like, you know, is it even, is it even worth it? And eh, I mean, I pay it because I hope it's worth it. We but, we should ask for an insurance expert to come and help in those situations. Cause I, I think reinsurance is a big part of it, but if everything's in the earthquake zone, where does it go? Right. Well, and you're insuring earthquake and earthquake zone, right? Cause if you're not in an earthquake zone, you don't buy earthquake insurance. But the, the point is if you can spread that risk appropriately across yeah. all all um you know m- multiple yeah. areas though then you can price it better um you know for example car insurance kind of does that right like yeah. i'm sure there are rates of higher accidents in certain areas and other areas and the pricing is different i know it's all state specific but the point is cars are cars across the whole country um so the risks are more or less the same yeah um so it's yeah you know things like car insurance or, or, or life insurance or those kinds of things that aren't so dependent on your area, you know, you're, you're in a flood zone or you're in an earthquake zone or you're in a hurricane zone, you know, we wouldn't buy hurricane insurance here. In fact, I don't even think you could buy it here in the greater Seattle area. Who would sell it to me? I actually probably somebody <laughs> would sell it to me, but yeah, it's, um, yeah. dead money from your, yeah, point. the insurance company doesn't get revenue here. So they have to price all that risk into that zone, which is apparently difficult yeah. to do. It has to be supplemented by someone else though, too, in a right. less risky zone in terms of that particular, you know, severity or that particular incident disaster i guess let's move on to airbnb so uh i commented that there's an airbnb recession and what i mean by that is the people that own airbnbs are reporting and and this is mixed i don't know if we can get perfect data on this airbnb came out with earnings it seems like it was actually pretty good they don't necessarily report you know they report gross bookings and things but then there's all these articles that say things like revenues are down 50% in cities like Phoenix and Austin. And um, Airbnb is not reporting it to that that level of, of detail. Um, I actually 
messaged a, I got a friend of mine that, that owns a couple of Airbnbs and his insights were that if you don't have sort of a premier or unique property, you know, if your property kind of looks like everybody else, it's not getting rentals like it was, you know, even a handful of months ago. But if you have a unique property that's either nicer, has a, has a, a view or some nicer furniture, or just, it's more eclectic, you know, it's kind of like a tree house instead of just a standard condo. Those are still keeping up with demand. So, um, it's been an interesting story to see what's unfolding, but you know, how, what's your take on what's going on here and what do you think it'll do to the housing market with all these owners of these Airbnbs? Yeah. Yeah. This was on, um, our doc. We had a New York post article, uh, quoting, um, Nick Gurley. He's the Austin revenue consulting. So I guess he specializes in real estate. He's the one that quoted, uh, 50% revenue cut in cities like Phoenix and Austin. And it created this whole wave of like, I hate Airbnb for this reason or that reason. Mm. Um, I think it's a lot smaller than what they're making out to be um, in terms of the Airbnb hate, right? Because the initial thinking is all these short-term renter owners, right, are pushing out potential home buyers who are intending to live in the home, right? So uh, the affordability crisis is is, is spotlighting in Airbnb. Um, I don't think the data really supports that, right? There's 1.2 million available short-term rentals. Right, that includes Airbnb, Verbo, and all these other ones. But there's 144 million total homes, right, either for sale or rent, hmm. um, or not, or owned, right? So 144 versus 1.2, it's a very small percentage, right? So Less than 1%. Yeah, yeah, it's very unlikely that you've been pushed out of a Airbnb owner if you, you intended to buy a house. And again, if if you're looking to buy a house near a tourist area like, like a Disneyland or somewhere close, I I could see that. But outside of there, where where I live, I I'm sure there's Airbnbs in Antelope, California, but I I doubt there's high demand there. So I think it really does matter the uniqueness. Like if you converted an old trailer into an Airbnb, that yeah, you have appeal. But if you're renting out a uh, your basement or your room. What what kind of appeal is that other than some grifter wants to stop by for the night? Hmm. Interesting. I think the fundamental point here that I heard, though, is that a lot of people think that Airbnbs have bought up cities and they're making it harder to, you know, harder for the, the first time home buyer to buy. And this data would suggest that's not the case with less than 1% of homes actually owned by, yeah. Yeah. you know, short-term renter owners. Um, I do know that the vast majority of these are owned by actual humans, not corporations. So it is still just, you know, people buying a second home that are then renting it out. And that's good news, right? I think months ago sure. we were seeing, you know, BlackRock is buying all this stuff and Blackstone is buying all this stuff and first time home buyers are screwed. And it appears the data would suggest that's not, that institutional buying of homes has not really made a dent. Um, but yeah, this is interesting. Yeah. And again, not to be Airbnb apologists, right? Staying in an Airbnb is... Nothing like a hotel, right? At least a hotel kind of picks up after you. Um, at least their linens and their bedding, right? The last Airbnb, we had to strip down the bedding and start the first load for the, the homeowner. And this was just a few months ago when we visited you guys in Seattle. We came back down through Oregon. So, um, <clears throat> again, it's probably the short-term renter owners aren't setting up their operations properly, right? They're not hotel professionals, so they're 
a lot of Airbnbs, this is not uncommon, right? Are asking the guests to clean up after themselves. CEO of Airbnb spent a year in Airbnbs. He uh, gave up his place and decided to live in his own product. And uh, he actually experienced in firsthand how good the situation was in, in some instances and how, how bad it was in others with, you know, sometimes he would check into a home and he would get this book of things he had to do when he checked out. Um, or, you know, he had complaints on how he would book a room and, you know, the, the, the fees were really high. And so yeah, there's the price doubles, right? Yeah. So if you've noticed recently, when you go on Airbnb, there's a little toggle now that says, do you want the, the real price? Like the, the after tax, the full price, or do you just want like the, the, the per room per night price? And there's a little toggle. Um, and he's also, I know helped, helped kind of streamline a lot of those, that laundry list that, that we've all gotten. I do think that a lot of that's gone away. I stayed at a VRBO somewhat recently, and it felt like the first Airbnb I ever stayed in years ago because we had this laundry list. In fact, in fact, I booked it, uh, and I think I just said like one person, just uh, I booked it, no big deal, right? Um, well, there was more than one person in there. It was my family and my, my uh, I, I guess we took the grandparents with us. Anyway, I get this email from them, and they're like, hey, you didn't appropriately say how many people were staying in the home. And so that actually increases our cleaning costs because we have to make two beds instead of one. And so, you know, if you give us a positive review, uh, we'll still refund you your cleaning fee. Otherwise, you know, we would have adjusted that if we knew that there were more than, you know, whatever, four or five people coming. How'd they know? They have cameras on site? No, they had to make four beds. So, you know, it's like <laughs> two beds rather. So instead of one. And so they're like, you know, our cleaning costs. Are, I didn't respond. I was like, this is stupid. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so that was like a VRBO experience that felt like my first Airbnb experience. I haven't had it that way in an Airbnb in, in probably ever. Point is, I think that that kind of stuff is, is improving and that laundry list isn't there anymore. Um, so. Yeah, I'll step on a soapbox a little bit. Is if you're wanting to get in the short-term rental business and you're trying to make money off guests, you probably shouldn't treat them as housemaids or house cleaners. That's part of the business. The house guests are paying you to stay at your home. That's that comes with the territory. Is cleaning up after someone in a short-term rental that you are making money off of. I just don't get the whole. You got to clean up everything. I don't know if I totally agree with you. I think, uh, you know, I think starting the dishwasher is fine, right? I think uh, sure, yeah. stripping the beds and starting the laundry is a pain. I think if you're doing this in an operation, you should have more than one set of sheets, like get them professionally cleaned or whatever. Yeah. Um, or if you're doing it on your own, like take those sheets home, clean them, bring them back next time you turn the home over. So those types of things. But um, yeah. I think that's part of the cost of their investment, right? It's part of that manual labor. You're making money off of someone staying in your home you do have to weigh those costs. And that includes cleaning up after someone sometimes. I mean, I think the difference between an Airbnb and a hotel is the kitchen, right? And yeah. sometimes the kitchen can be a mess. Yeah. You know, stuff all yeah. over the stove, food stuck everywhere, plates that are sitting out, which is my pet peeve. Uh, you know, ketchup on plates that's been sitting there for a day that can't come off without soaking it in water for 30 minutes, right? <laughs> stuff like just that, rinse. right? Yeah, just rinse first. Just rinse. This is my thing. Just... just <laughs> Do the work. Why don't do it now? So you're creating more work later. Do it now, and yeah. it's less work now. Anyway, that's that's the topic for another talk show. But um, yeah, I, I think that's primarily the reason why they would charge or charge more for a cleaning fee because 
kitchens. Kitchens are messy. Yeah. Bathrooms are in hotels. Beds are in hotels. Everything else is the same. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm saying that too because anyone who's jumped into this venture, it's not a 100% profit business, right? There, there has to be elbow grease put into it sometimes. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's move on. U.S. home sales fall, but not in the West. West not coast, in the West. West coast. Yeah. Like we said. Um, anyway, so sales of previously owned homes in July fell to a six-month low down 2.2% from June to an annual rate of 4 million units that are turning hands. Uh, let's see. This is across the board. However, uh, oh, interestingly enough, sales of all cash homes are up. Hmm. Interesting. Sales of homes over a million fell the least compared to all other price categories. Huh. That's actually interesting. I thought I've heard something different than that. I heard that sales of over a million fell the most. Sales of under a million. That's what I heard. Actually yeah. went up. Might have to fact check this article here. It was LinkedIn, so we gotta we gotta trust it. Uh, <laughs> trust what you well, read on the internet, right? Yeah. The 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 source was the National Association of Realtors, so. Um, it's based on their sales data. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So in the West home sales climbed 2.7%. The steepest drop was in the Northeast down 5.9. And, uh, the blame is tight supply and near quarter century, uh, which the supply is near a quarter century low. Um, and of course, mortgage rates being high. I wonder why they're up in the West though. Yeah, it's previously owned homes. I know the Northeast is a lot more crowded in terms of real estate space, but here in my general vicinity, a lot of new home inventory is coming up. But yeah, this wouldn't apply to that because it's previously owned. I, Do you so think I people that moved away in COVID are moving back to their tech hub city because they're being called back to the office? Yeah, one one topic that we cut from here was Amazon is giving a ultimatum right to people who are working remote come to the office to work and i think we've started to see now all all companies doing that um i think meta came out and said the same thing basically show up or your badge is done you know we're going to deactivate your badge you're you're done um so i think all companies are starting to say that now yeah in the west all companies especially the the big tech companies i don't know if it'd be enough to push home buying interest back but again it has to be sold too in the first place so it could be a mix of people willing to put their house on the line Mm -hmm. um but yeah where are they going i that's what is really weird with this data because typically when you sell your home you want to buy a new home to get into and a lot of people here are paying sub three percent mortgage rate mortgage rates so it's weird then you would assume that we wouldn't have this inventory issue, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Especially in if sales are down in the Northeast, I doubt people are moving across the country, right? You know, if you if you moved out of Seattle, you probably moved to like Idaho or you know Nevada or something for for cheaper cost of living, maybe better weather or something. And now you're coming back. I would just, I'd be surprised if you moved from Seattle to upstate New York and now you decided to come back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that's again, maybe we're thinking too logically here, but. <laughs> The, the home data just, just doesn't jive with anything. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Well, we'll find it. We'll try to get some more data here. That's. This just seems kind of weird. 
Yeah. All, yeah. all it's blaming is, oh, two factors. Sales activity and mortgage rates. Uh-huh. Yawn. What else? <laughs> anyway, we'll try to dive into this. We'll, we'll report yeah, back yeah. next time. Well, it's a demographic thing because, again, I don't know if it going back to the office is enough to push that much. But, again, that's only one half of it. That's the buyer end, right? Mm-hmm. Someone has to be willing to sell their house. I just... I can't think of, I could throw a rock at 10,000 people and one of them might be willing to sell their house in this environment. Unless you're being called back to work at Amazon and you your job's state, on the line. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you could rent, right? But like, you're going. Yeah. Assuming you want to keep your job. Someone's buying. Right. Sorry for that. It's, uh, someone's buying. So, <clears throat> so if you're boomeranging back to the region... Uh, renting isn't coming up in this data because this is home sales. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's all the time we have today. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to this episode. Please remember to subscribe to our episodes here, whether you're listening on YouTube or on anywhere you listen to podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, anywhere else. And be sure to check out our newest YouTube channel uh still still on our normal youtube channel which is what this is hosted on but it's a new playlist called concilio university it's where we host two to six minute videos on super helpful things like what's a mac mega backdoor roth ira and how the heck do you do it and a whole host of other things so uh please do tune in give us a watch throw us a like and uh as always send any comments or questions to team at conciliowealth.com and we'll address it in a future episode thanks everyone for tuning in thanks everyone